0: You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Cathay Pacific.
1: A co-worker recently got back from a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip to Japan. For her honeymoon, she started off in Tokyo and then did a tour nearly around the country, covering some impressive ground. The longest leg of their trip was, of course, Los Angeles to Tokyo. But they flew Cathay Pacific and said it was pretty amazing. If you haven't traveled with Cathay Pacific before, they're an international airline based out of Hong Kong. Every week, they have about 100 flights going to Hong Kong and even more to Asia from the US and Canada. One thing that's cool about Cathay Pacific is that they have one of the youngest airline fleets and they continue to invest in new planes. The surprise of walking onto a newer airplane when you're boarding for a long haul is one of life's small pleasures. And if you happen to be flying out of Washington DC or Seattle this spring, Spoiler alert, they'll have Cathay Pacific's brand new Airbus A350 planes. Cathay Pacific is running a deal for Goop podcast listeners now, where you can get 5% off flights from the U.S. to Hong Kong and Asia. Book between January 31st and May 31st to travel this year. It can be an economy, premium economy, or business class. Just head to cathaypacific.com U.S. and use promo code GOOP2019.
0: Okay, it's me again. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you've listened before, thank you and welcome back. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world. And you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. I learn a lot from the guests she talks with and take away something tangible from every single episode. Today, Elise is continuing our February relationship series in this chat with therapist Stan Tatkin. Stan is an LA-based clinician and teacher who developed the psychobiological approach to couple therapy, otherwise known as PACT. He's written a handful of regularly referenced books and audiobooks, like Your Brain on Love, Relationship Rx, and his latest, We Do. Stan has a really interesting philosophy on intimate relationships and the way individuals fit into couples. Whether you're happily in a relationship, struggling in one, or ambivalent about coupling up, I think you're going to take something away from Elise's interview with Stan today.
2: This is um, a memory system that anticipates threat. And is, uh, and is organized around that. That is an entirely flexible plastic system, and it is not uh, etched in stone. And in, it's there to inform a partner as to how to, uh, to be with the animal they picked. You're a different animal than I am. If I keep approaching you to the left and you bite me, and I'm an idiot to keep approaching you on the left, I have to learn you. That's what this is about. It's not about criticizing, it's about understanding.
0: Now let's get to Elise and Stan.
1: Thank you for being here. Thank you, Elise. I loved your book. Aw. And now, and I know that the rules of the game, it's funny, when I started reading it, it filled me with... Fear and apprehension.
2: <laughs> I was going <gonna>, <laughs> to fill in the blank, dread. Okay. And then,
1: as I started reading it, I was like, "Oh, we're we're pretty good. We're oh, pretty good." good. It, I feel like it's a feel-good couples therapy. Book. Oh, good,
2: good. Yeah. When you say we're pretty good, you mean you and your husband? Yeah. Oh, good.
1: Yeah. No, I don't know what I expected to find, but you never know. It's. I feel like really in a relationship because they're so complicated and sometimes fraught and often amazing. Like you don't really know how you score.
2: Yeah, you don't want a book that <laughs> scores you. Actually, you know, people do that too much anyway. That's actually a problem.
1: It's true, right? Yeah. Like we all want to know what's normal. Yeah, it's the, it's the dinner conversation around right. the world. How there much is... sex are you having? How much sex should I be having? Not to get right to sex, but I love that moment in the book when you, when it's the couple and they're like, "We don't think we're having enough sex," right? And you're like, "Well." How much sex do you want? Like, do you want to
2: be having more sex? Are you horny?
1: (laughs) And they're like, no. "No."
2: (laughs) Just think we should.
1: (laughs) Right. And I think that that like, oh, we should. Yeah. Is such a, like persecutes people in relationships.
2: Yeah. Well, it's part of the human condition. We have a brain that is constantly comparing and contrasting constantly and constantly aware of what isn't here, what we don't have, what's missing. Mm -hmm. And this gives rise to envy and feeling sad and feeling empty and not feeling grateful because we don't have a mind that actually does a really good investigation on the daily basis how much we're actually getting. Mm -hmm. It's it's certain bugs in the brain, in the human brain, like the negativity bias. All things being equal, we have brains that will assume the negative in the absence of any positive input. Right. So this is just the way we roll.
1: Right. Yeah. And is that negativity bias the same as sort of what like what Brene Brown talks about with like the shitty first draft or like <laughs> our mind's desire to make up stories based on the absence of all data points?
2: It's constantly making things up. Yeah. That's the brain we have. It makes shit up, and this is based on. Um, all the things, the tasks that the brain, uh, human brain has to do at any given moment. So we're automatic more than we realize. About 90% of our day is automatic, reflexive, based on memory and a particular kind of memory called recognition, which is lightning fast. So we have a brain that is constantly looking for ways to conserve energy, like taking shortcuts, mm-hmm. like predicting what's going to happen next. And while this is very good in love relationships, it's a, it's a big problem. problem because we're acting and reacting so fast, we don't even know what we are acting and reacting to. Basically, it's memory. Right. So, you know, we tend to shoot first and ask questions later. And this is the problem uh, with the human condition all around us. And it's very clear in the primary attachment relationship, the romantic primary attachment relationship, which is what we're here to talk about.
1: Right. Yeah. So what So what does a secure functioning relationship, I know that's sort of the primary thesis of the book, like how do you create a secure functioning Relationship, relationship. yeah. So what... Can you define that for us?
2: Secure functioning basically, um, you know, goes back to social contract theory. So a system that allows two different people, two different brains, two different nervous systems, two different histories to get along to be with each other in a way that's fair and just and mutually sensitive. So secure functioning basically is how societies form. The couple is the smallest unit of a society. Therefore, it operates by certain principles of social justice or injustice, it depends. So by by secure functioning, we're talking about two people who share power, And they acknowledge their differences, accept their differences, but they come up with shared principles of governance, ideas that protect them from each other and everybody else. And that is how they conduct their lives. They base these principles on what is good for the individual and what's good for the collective, what's good for me and good for you. And it's done that way because uh, the human primate is warlike, uh, selfish self-centered aware of what is missing comparing and contrasting xenophobic mm-hmm. um, and you know other things that are unreliable in relationship so this has been going on since the beginning of civilization ten Commandments thou shalt not kill uh, the reason that's there is pe- people were killing each other so so how do we how do we enter a, a long-term relationship based on interdependence where we both have, a similar vision about what the relationship should be. And hopefully it's based on these ideas of fairness and justice. And this is not a pipe dream or a unicorn because we see people from all walks of life doing this already. So this is doable as long as the culture expects it. Mm-hmm. And for me, as a uh, as a couple therapist, I expect it in my clinic and that's about as you know the best that i can do cuz the greater culture doesn't but in other systems where that is expected You cannot flourish, you cannot survive unless you drink the Kool-Aid, that Mm -hmm. your life depends on the person, you know, that flank you. And it becomes a cause, a reason to be, a reason to exist, that you're serving a higher purpose, and that is the fidelity of this relationship, radical loyalty, radical devotion. Mm. That pays out dividends that anything other than that won't. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to describe unless you're in that kind of a system.
1: And so it's this is your foxhole buddy. That's right. This is the person who will always have you your back, who will protect you, who will never throw you under the bus to their family.
2: Because they're mutual stakeholders. They don't want me doing that.
1: Right. Exactly. Right. So this is the spouse who... Values your opinion over his mother's opinion,
2: or right, or whatever it may be, right? Like maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe he doesn't value my opinion over his mother's, <laughs> but uh, but is isn't going to throw me under the bus vis a vis that opinion. So right, uh, right. <laughs> isn't going to humiliate me, put me down, and so on like that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that sounded like it was personal, but it wasn't. No, 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 not at all. So what is the couple bubble?
2: (laughs) You know, it's so funny when writing these things. You you (laughs) you never expect that anyone's ever going to read anything. And it was was a surprise when Wired for Love became popular. I had people coming in saying things like couple bubble. And and, and, and after a while... (laughs) You you created
1: it. After a while, you
2: start to go, (laughs) no, God, no. Anyway, so couple bubble, all that means is that you and I enter into... An environment that we protect. Let's say it's, we call it the safety and security system it's our ecosystem our terrarium we protect that because it allows us to free up resources that other people otherwise are are preoccupied with like mm-hmm. existential concerns will our relationship exist tomorrow right so we're invested in being a tether for each other in providing relief and comfort in a way that frees up resources for us to be more creative better people better parents but also we protect those resources from third things, third people, third tasks that would relegate either of us to third will. Mm. So basically, it's you and I against the world. We have each other's backs. We're experts on each other. I'm an Elise uh, Elise Whisperer. You're a Stan Whisperer. We're masters of each other because we care to be. And we do this by agreement, Mm. Because we realize that if one of us screws this up without repair, we both suffer. Right. Right? It's the air we breathe, the water we drink. So we're mutual stakeholders. We're interdependent as a survival team. Survival meaning that we band together to survive this life, which is certainly unpredictable and harsh sometimes. And we do that everywhere we go. So I don't embarrass you in public or private. We protect each other that way. We know exactly how to minister to each other. Um, we know exactly how to lift each other up or to move each other around and do things without using fear, threat, or guilt. Mm-hmm. On On a psychobiological level, we're, you know, we have an increased complexity, socially, emotionally, to be able to read each other's faces and voices, to predict each other in a good way. Basically, we, we are providing for each other what the mother-infant pair, the caregiver-infant pair is supposed to provide. That's, you know, I I originally was studying infants and uh, infant caregivers because I wanted to do prevention work. And then it morphed into couples, which turns out to be good for kids anyway. Yeah. And this whole business of reliability, of trust, because we decide to do that, mm-hmm. right? It's only what we say we do, right? Our agreements. That that does something remarkable for us in terms of our ability to develop, our ability to get along with others and to play along with others. It's really kind of an essential basic formula for being able to not just survive this life, but to thrive. Mm-hmm. And here we're trying to get couples to, to get this idea because it's not a series of techniques. People want to know, you know, I want tools. But this is, these are ideas, big ideas, that you either buy into or you don't. If you buy into them, then figuring out the tools is pretty easy, mm-hmm. right? Like for us, you know, we put the relationship first. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we put the kids in a closet with a bowl of water and a kibble. <laughs> <laughs> it means that that everyone depends on our well-being, that if we're not good, everyone's right. fucked. And so it's in our best interest and everyone's best interest for us to be good caregivers of right. each other.
1: Yeah. It's like the put the oxygen mask on yourself exactly. first. So and I love that you mentioned that there's way too much mother blaming in yeah, our culture. Yeah, yeah. there is. In the context, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. If it's not one thing, it's your mother, which is unfair. But I think that that's shifting. But in the context of being good parents, right, and raising children who are secure and highly functioning, and in this the world of helicopter parenting, sort of over engagement with kids, probably a lack of prioritization of the romantic main relationship. Like, what's what's the right what's
2: the right approach? Well you know the reason I I've shifted to working with adults uh, adult pair bonding is because children are the little bells the, the parents are the big bells every everyone is ringing to them pets mm. as well if they're in disarray if they're not good managers of each other then there's going to be problems at the lower level the kids are not going to be quite right kids need their parents to, be good at taking care of each other so they don't have to step in and do it. Mm. They want them to be in love. Because if you remember being a child, you know, your parents are basically the sun, moon, and the earth. And if they're happy, you're happy and you're free to be a kid. So over on a child usually means that the relationship sucks, uh, the, the uh, love relationship. Otherwise, parents wouldn't be doing that. That uh, creates problems, too, because a child needs to be able to be a child and not be parentified and not be seen as stealing away from the other parent or that they're losing the other parent because this one is devaluing them. Th- they really want to feel like th- this is an area, a unit that the, that is the couple that they cannot intrude on, which makes them expand their social array to more than two people right in the beginning you have an intense dyadic system an orbit between caregiver and baby and caregiver and child then that other parent begins to intrude on that and the child begins to learn that they're not you know they're not the center of the universe there's a loss there that's important in order to push that child into accepting threes instead of twos we call mm. it going from dyads to triads that is the beginning of being able to now navigate within groups of people mm. but if there's only a diet then I'm not going to be so good. I'm going to treat the world as a dyad. I'm not going to be as facile at sharing with people, be as facile with dealing with loss or having to not be the primary attention figure for everything and everyone. So this whole idea, this natural thing of having competing others when you're a child is important for the development of that child towards a greater complexity of letting go of that primary intense dyadic mm-hmm. system and be able to incorporate other relationships as well so single parenting is admirable it's tough but if you're going to be a single parent have a community mm-hmm. uh, there need to be a lot of other people interacting with that child a lot of other personalities so and competing otherwise uh, that uh, that's uh, depriving that's, that's that's a deprivation uh, mm-hmm. problem there
1: and why it's so important sort of in this modern day to find you know, babysitter, nanny, a caregiver, extra hand to show your child that it's yeah. possible that they can be loved by many people too.
2: Well, yes, and and it wasn't that long ago that people didn't raise children in isolation. Um, you know, women got together with same age or similar age children, and they would hang together and raise the children together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem there was the fathers weren't around. But this idea of raising a child within a community, within an extended family, is something that we're paying for. And it is a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you can hire your nannies and your babysitters. But even better is to is to create a community Mm -hmm. um, whereby mothers and fathers are supported, because raising kids is difficult. And they need to be regulated the parents in order to regulate the children. Mm. Uh, And so that's just a shout out for something that I wish we could go back to and institutionalize. And that is raising children in groups instead of just uh, in isolation.
1: I love it, you hippie. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Well, there's <laughs>
2: but there's good research. No, behind I know. I parenting, yes, right? Yeah, like Allo it's parenting. it's Absolutely. how we were. It's how
1: it's, it's how supposed it's been to be. Done. Yes. Yeah. No. In the, I in wish. The wild. It's my fantasy.
2: Well, maybe people can self organize. You yeah. know, if enough people understand that this is actually a better thing.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's it's. I had great parents. Mm-hmm. I'm sure so not you perfect. Say, I'm like I don't know if I'm an anchor. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that in a minute, but my parents were exceptionally good at prioritizing their relationship. And that meant that they went on vacations by Mm -hmm. themselves and left us at home with babysitters. That meant, you know, they're not very romantic necessarily, but they're incredible friends and partners. And so it wasn't about like presents and lavish date nights and and doting, but it was more they just really like being together. And that was first. Yes. And the family unit was second. And I learned from that, which is not – probably a major revelation to most people, but that my parents are not my primary relationship. I mean, obviously for the beginning of my life, they were my only thing, Yes. but I knew that I would have children of my own Mm -hmm. and a partner and then my children, as much as I love them and want to eat their faces. I know. I just like, literally, (laughs) I'm like, I just want to eat your face, but they're gonna move on and I'm yes. not gonna be their goddamn primary love. And no. so I'm left with my husband, who it, is my primary love. Yes. So I learned that from them and I'm grateful.
2: Good. <laughs> well, you know, I like to say that that you should remain girlfriend and boyfriend throughout life. Yeah. Or girlfriend and girlfriend, boyfriend and boyfriend. And the reason is that it, it it's the juice that really drives everything. Mm-hmm. That without that what's the point? That if if partners aren't treating each other like girlfriend and boyfriend, and not that they have to, because secure functioning doesn't mean romance at all. Um, there are plenty of non-romantic partners that are secure functioning. But in terms of love relationship and in our preoccupation with romantic love, there are ways to to keep that dopaminergic, addictive, exciting love alive through certain ways of behaving with one another. There are ways of, of bringing about quiet love, which mm. is calming. It is a, a real quiet, safe kind of love. There's a, a way of, of actually co-creating all these different states if, if people want to learn. Like how? Well, exciting love is done with eye contact,
1: right. close
2: up right? Eye contact is extraordinarily stimulating at first, uh, and then it should become calming. But we fall in love through the eyes. Mm. We're visual creatures. We have a visual brain. And we fall in love with our babies. We fall in love with our pets, Mm. right? And that can be uh, evoked at any time Mm. people wish to do. You can uh, evoke exciting love by using something called joint attention. You and I are looking at our kid, and we're like, uh, thrilled and we look at each other and go God I'm so glad I'm with you mm. uh, or we're looking at a beautiful piece of scenery and that excites us and we have uh, we look at each other and we say I'm the luckiest person in the world to be with you and that causes an amplification effect only two human minds can do that we actually produce more dopamine presynaptic sort of a dopamine squirt in the brain and that is the addictive kind of love mm-hmm. that I was talking about that makes us want to go back again and again and again. So you either see that in your family of origin or you have to uh, learn it. Right. Right. I saw it with my parents. My parents did that quite a bit. There are lots of ways to do that. I could get excited, you know, with my computer doing some fancy trick that it never did before. And I could say to my wife, you know, Tracy, come over here and see, see what's happening with my computer. <laughs> and, you know, maybe once she'll do that. But after that, it's kind of a drag because it's my excitement. <laughs> so rather than say that, I can just use my excitement and parlay that into something usable for her. And I could say, I love you so much. Oh, that's nice. Now she can use that. Now we get that amplification effect. So right. I just threw to her something that was a personal excitement and made it mutual.
1: I like that because I feel like there's also pressure on couples. And I think about this too. My husband and I, I think, are very complementary and very different. I'm very verbal. He's very visual. He went to school for architecture. I was a writer.
2: Yes. And still are, right?
1: Yeah. And he gets very excited by architecture, bit century modern architecture specifically and cars. Yes. Right? He's, and I just can't get it up, you know, like I just (laughs) struggle to care. Yes. And I feel bad, but I love this idea of like, I'm, he's excited about this. Can he then transmute that into something that he can share with me that isn't look at that Yes, (laughs)
2: absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, it's so funny because uh, my daughter, when she was little, would constantly call me to come to her. And I knew after a while it was uh, to see the cat in some other weird position, you know. (laughs) And, and that
1: is a good reason. It was a
2: yeah, it was a good reason. But, you know, it, I mean, at that time, she didn't know to convert that excitement into something I could use. But it was adorable. Uh, but as adults, yeah, I think we want to be a little more skillful with that. And, yeah, your husband should learn how to, to convert that excitement into something that you can use. And that would amplify both of yours.
1: Yeah? I love that. It works. I actually. love that. Yeah. It's a good tip. Yeah.
0: Time for a little break.
1: Travel content has always been a big part of the Goop brand, and I think it's the way a lot of people first discover us. They're planning a trip to, say, Vancouver or New York or Chiang Mai, and they come across our city guide for that destination, which typically includes hotels, restaurants, bars, cafes, shops, and things to do. And depending on the place, maybe a deep dive into the best spots to get sushi or go wine tasting or learn to surf. The great perk of working at Goop is that we get to go out and test these places for our readers. So, the team travels a fair amount, and we've gotten to know our way around the airlines, like Cathay Pacific. Cathay Pacific is an international airline based in Hong Kong, but they fly all over. Now, Cathay Pacific goes to more than 180 different destinations in more than 40 countries and territories. If you're based in the US, they fly from Boston, Chicago, LA, New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And I heard they're coming to Seattle soon this spring. They also fly out of Vancouver and Toronto, and of course London and elsewhere in Europe. From the U.S., Cathay Pacific has a little more than 100 flights per week going to Hong Kong and beyond, including 22 destinations in mainland China and a bunch more throughout Asia. I think a trip to Thailand sounds pretty nice right now. And so does this deal. Cathay Pacific is giving 5% off flights from the U.S. to Hong Kong and Asia, booked between January 31st and May 31st to travel this year, it can be an economy, premium economy, or business class. Just head to kathypacific.com US and use promo code GOOP2019. Every now and again, I fall into a rut with my morning routine. I'll find myself going to the cafe around the corner from our office and ordering the same breakfast bowl, or more often than not, just a latte, and I'll wait it out until lunch. To change it up, I recently started snacking on granola from Purely Elizabeth which might make me late to the party. If you're new to the brand too, Purely Elizabeth makes different kinds of oatmeal, granola, and grain-free bars. It was founded by Elizabeth Stein, who wanted to flip the breakfast and snack markets by adding in some healthier, better tasting options. And she came up with some incredibly snackable options, like their clustered grain-free granolas. I especially like their new superfood granolas, made with adaptogens like reishi and ashwagandha. Adaptogens like ashwagandha have a long history in Ayurveda, as they're believed to help our bodies adapt to stress. At Goop, we've been known to mix a teaspoon of ashwagandha into our morning smoothie or latte. We drink a lot of almond milk lattes over here. I don't think our food editors have ever mixed ashwagandha into granola before, but it turns out it totally works. Purely Elizabeth bakes their granola with coconut oil and sweetens it with coconut sugar, which I love. You can eat the granola plain, mix it into a bowl of yogurt, Or if you're really going for it, pour it on top of a plate of waffles. You won't regret it. You can try out all of Purely Elizabeth's granola flavors at PurelyElizabeth.com. Just enter promo code GOOP for 20% off your order.
0: Let's turn back to Elise and Stan Tatkin.
1: So, obviously, we're conditioned. Yes. As little babies into how we sort of relate. And I like that your book seems to be very optimistic about people's ability, particularly with self-awareness, to overcome that and learn some of those behaviors. But can you take us through the anchor, the the island, island, the the wave. wave? It's funny because when I read it, I was like, oh pat on the back, I am an anchor. And then I was reading sort of the conversation, the, the dialogue with you right. about the island. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm an island. And then Kiki, one of my coworkers, who has also read your book, was like, you're an island. And I oh, was like, that's what? So funny. No, I'm an anchor. And she just gave me this slow, skeptical, long... <laughs>
2: How dare you call me an island?
1: So what's an anchor, what's an island, and what's a wave?
2: Okay, so people should know that this is based on attachment theory, attachment research, which isn't as as uh, nautical in terms of its <laughs> descriptions. Um, the, the, the terminology is, is far more harder to say and uh, could be taken the wrong way. So attachment is only a piece of this, and, and I don't want people to think that this work really focuses on attachment as the sole thing. It's a piece, a small piece of, of uh, relationship. But it has to do with safety and security. It has to do how we move toward and away from those who we depend on. And that gets set pretty early in terms of our parents' behavior. We adapt, we adapt to the environment we're born mm-hmm. into, and that's a good thing. So let's say you come from a family where the relationship relationships didn't come first, right? Mm -hmm. That was not the holy grail of the family. Maybe performance parents came first. Maybe the self, self self-interests came first. Maybe uh, it was being taken care of by, you know, a a parent needed you to take care of them. All of these change the way we feel about our independence and autonomy and how we feel about straying and separating and becoming our own person. Mm -hmm. So an anchor is somebody who from infancy feels secure with his or her primary. That means that as a baby, of course, this is through a mind of a baby, I can explore mother and I can explore the non-mother world without major consequences. I don't um, have to worry about her not being there, her being angry with me, discouraging me from going out. And I basically have a well-resourced mother figure who's curious, attentive, and present, Mm -hmm. right? And that allows me to start to explore myself, explore, like I said, the non-mother world, and I have a secure base that I can run back to to refuel, to get energy to go out again. Now, contrast that with something less than ideal, and I feel insecure. You know, I don't feel that I um, have the resources to hold myself up, when I'm beginning to uh, be able to, to sit erect and or maybe even be able to stand, because I'm preoccupied with the lack of security. Insecurity takes up a ton of resources in children and adults and causes attention problems and mm-hmm. other problems too. So I may start to Cling, I may start to get fussy with my mother figure because I alternately feel like she's available and present, and other times distracted, overwhelmed, and maybe even rejecting and Mm. angry with me. Contrast that with a um, a mother figure who is more distancing, doesn't cuddle, doesn't do a lot of proximity seeking, doesn't do a lot of face to face, eye to eye. Wants me, expects me to be more independent and autonomous. I will not seek proximity. I will not look up when she comes into the room. I will play with my toys, even though my play is more impoverished, uh, because I'm preoccupied. So we have a distancing adaptation, we have a clinging adaptation both want and need relationship. However, what's driving their behavior is a memory or series of memories that if I depend on someone, this or that will happen. If I'm an island, I will get smothered. I will have my autonomy taken from me. I will have my things taken from me. I will no longer have my freedom. And this becomes a real fear and threat. And I defend myself by distancing, by dismissing certain Mm -hmm. attachments. Values by uh, being addicted to alone time. Um, You know, the island, the distancer, kind of has this idea of I want you in the house, just not in my room. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like you to interfere with me. I don't like you to interrupt me. I don't like you to come forward and make demands on me. I'm afraid of that. The wave is in the clinging group, and I am afraid of abandonment. I'm afraid uh, that I'm not enough, that I'm too much, that you're going to leave me, that you're going to punish me, that you're going to be angry with me. And so I tend to be negativistic. I tend to pull you toward me and then push you away. Mm -hmm. My ambivalence comes up when you arrive. I can, mm-hmm. I can want you, want you. But as soon as you show up, I kind of go, eh, I don't know, maybe can I, let me just go up with some more other people and see. Uh, you know I, I get ambivalent uh, at that point, which is real annoying. I should say that everybody is annoying. Anchors aren't perfect. They're annoying as hell. All people are burdens, uh, pain in the asses. It's just that we know the pain in the ass that the wave and the island is going to be yeah. because of their fears.
1: It's interesting, too, that when you think about when you start, and I know that throughout the book, you say, don't use this book to
2: diagnose yourself
1: and other people. But even in the context of dating, right, or sort of navigating a pool of potential mates, it's interesting to think about it because it starts to make like that hard to get behavior that is so irritating. Yes. It sort
2: of... Justifies it, not it, to make yes. it
1: acceptable, theoretically, but at least you're
2: like, it's not as personal. Right, exactly. By the way, going back to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I am sure, I am sure you are an anchor. With island-ish features, uh-huh. so most people are anchors. Most people are in that that wide berth of secure attachment, but they have ishiness, right? Wavish, mm-hmm. islandish. Yes. Um, the dyed-in-the-wool people are one-trick ponies. They've always been that way. They're still that way. They can't find their way out of it, and you'll know it when you see it, right? Um, they can only do that. But most people become islandish or wavish, in Relation to their partner, mm. so you get two people. One person looks like a wave, and they're with an island, and that that wave is really an island. But they picked uh, somebody who's much more avoidant than they are, and they look like they're more clinging. But they're not. They're just a few degrees, uh, Mm. you know, to the wave side. And so, yeah, don't use this to bang each other over the head. It's not astrology. Um, (laughs) It is a research model based on aggregates of people. It's not about real people. It's about nature. It's not about pathology. It is about our adaptation always adapting to our environment, and forgive us if we have memories, that uh, that as soon as we enter into a dependency relationship, we remember what mm-hmm. happens when we do that. I remember that I may be with someone who's disappointing. I may be uh, with someone who is going to smother me or mm-hmm. use me as a tool. You know, all these fears and concerns. And so I'll I'll act in a certain way that's predictable. And that's really the, the benefit. If I can understand you and myself, then I can know how to move you around based on your concerns. Mm. I know how to, to bypass threat by understanding you. I, you know what? I just want to talk to you for a second. Come here. Look in my eyes. Tell me you love me. I'm the greatest person in the world. Okay, now run along. Right. That's the catch and release technique with an island. I understand you. I'm not going. I'm not upset by your need to distance. That actually allows you to be less distancing. It actually heals that issue. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a wave and you're negativistic, instead of going forget it, you know you're being mean. I go towards you and I move towards you. I give you a big hug and I look at you and I say I love you, even though you're a bitch. Um, <laughs> you're my bitch. And, uh, and that squashes the anticipatory threat of, of uh, me rejecting you. Right. And people have to understand that, that not, nobody's doing this purposely. They're doing it automatically mm-hmm. uh, according to memory. That's what we are. We're memory machines. Yeah. And we tend to ascribe a lot of these behaviors to love, but it's not. Um, the island feels relief when their partner goes away. That's not because they don't love them. That, that's because the island feels too much interpersonal stress. And when their partner leaves, the first thing they feel is relief.
1: If my husband is also an anchor with islandish mm-hmm. tendencies, I and I always... It's funny you mentioned astrology because we're both Sagittarians. Uh-oh. Sagittarius. So not I that was, I know what that means, but yeah. Well, we crave independence. Oh, there you go. We prefer the company of animals. Oh, good. Yeah. So we exist as islands often together. Mm-hmm. Which I am wonder is that a problem?
2: No, why would it be a problem?
1: <laughs> I don't know.
2: None of these are problems, you okay. know. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, my literary agent wants me to write a book to, to combat some of the messages that are out there, <clears throat> that islands and waves can never be together, or that islands are some aberration. Um, it's not true. Uh, th- th- this is not personality. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this is um, a memory system that anticipates threat. And is, uh, and is organized around that. That is an entirely flexible plastic system, and it is not uh, etched in stone. And, and it's there to inform a partner as to how to uh, to be with the animal they picked, right? right. You're a different animal than I am. If I keep approaching you to the left and you bite me, and I'm an idiot to keep approaching you on the left, I have to learn you. That's what this is about. Mm-hmm. It's not about criticizing. It's about understanding.
1: Yeah. One of the profound and i again something that i relate to a moment in the book was when it's essentially it was a conversation about one person who's more outgoing yeah. one person who's less outgoing and so that of, never happens right right never mm-hmm. and how they ultimately had arrived at a, a system of what was it called paper
2: oh paper yes yeah. <laughs> and
1: so but this idea cuz this is something that happens in my relationship i'm more social my husband's very quiet. It's hard for him to like transition up to social experiences. And we go to dinner parties or events, and he's just like itchy, you know, like yes. he just starts like shifting in his chair and he's signaling me signaling yes. me. And sometimes I ignore him because right. I'm having a great time and right. we're going to finish that second bottle of wine. And then he's generally mad at me. He's oh, like, I was telling you I wanted to go home. And I'm right. like, it's nine. We're not going home. But I love this idea of in those situations, having a plan, plan, right?
2: always plan and prepare. Tracy and I, before we go into a uh, place, we always think about, we're gonna control the seating, we're gonna control uh, the room. And what are we gonna do when this person deals with us? Um, how are we gonna deal with them? Um, how are you going to come and get me if somebody corners me? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you gonna provide cover if I if I wanna go to the car because I'm tired of people and I wanna watch a movie on my phone? Um, huh. uh, she'll say, oh, yeah, he's, he's dealing with." somebody, uh, a patient. Basically, People are coming to our party, and uh, that's how we roll. We take care of each other in those uh, places. Mm-hmm. We uh, make eye contact, and we decide, you know, if she says, you know, at, at 9 o'clock I really want to go, and I, I don't want you to buck me on it. I want you to, to do it. And I, I might say to her, but, you know, God, you know, these are some of my best friends. I'm making this up. I don't have best friends. I, I want to be with them. Uh, so can we get to stay till 10? And she'll say no. Okay, but then she'll say, how about if I do this? So this is where bargaining comes in, and then she'll bargain. She'll give me something for that, and I'll say, fine, deal. The reason you want to bargain always and to move in lockstep is that you don't want to look back and litigate something that was unfair. Mm. You want to move together or not at all, and that's done through negotiating, bargaining. And that's how you do it in terms of cleanly. You want to move forward, thumbs up, everyone's fine, nothing to remember, and now you go. Right. So,
1: so I say to Rob, if you stay until 10, you can watch hockey completely unmolested tomorrow unmolested, night. Unmolested, <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> I'll keep the kids away. Yeah. And I'll keep my hands off you. There
2: you go. Well, he <laughs> might say... Well, you- you can keep the hands. But, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, the kids, yes, please.
1: So when for people who are not in a relationship and who right. want to be in a relationship, how important is the sort of self-knowledge about how they function? Like how conscious do you need to be of your tendencies? Like do you see that people just continue to attract the same thing because they're – well, sending out those vibes, it,
2: but um, this idea of attracting the same thing—we we pair bond by recognition. Mm-hmm. We don't pair bond with strangers. So, in order for us to progress to the point where we are living together and we're you know we're not seeing other people, we're now primaries. And in order to that for that to happen, we would have had to have recognized each other in some manner. So. That means we're going to be more alike than we think, more Mm -hmm. alike. Even on the surface, we're opposites. We're still, uh, you know, uh, in some way very much the same. And so the problem is, uh, is that people... Uh, try to consider what the perfect person is for them instead of thinking about the perfect relationship. Mm. What is the relationship I need and want for the long run? What should it be? And when I'm I'm formulating this, it should be in the we. We tell each other everything. We have each other's backs. Mm. When one of us and Tracy and I have this, uh, one of us is is in distress. The other drops what they're doing and ministers that person. Mm. What must the relationship be? And that person that you're looking for will either fit into that vision or not. If they don't, I would suggest passing. So if you're not thinking about the kind of relationship that you want, whether the person's island, anchor, wave, frog, or dog, it doesn't matter. If they believe in the same thing, if they want the same thing, I say go. Mm -hmm. That's great. If they don't, And what might be the case? Well, an island who doesn't think they're an island or doesn't care isn't going to go for certain things like I tell you everything. Um, That's not really how they roll. And that's not the person that you want to be with. But if it's an island who says, you know, I've been there, done that. I'm tired of this. I really uh, would like to agree not to do that anymore. And I'm on board. That's all you want is somebody who is going to point in the same direction on the big ticket items, Mm. not everything. We're not talking about what color to paint the wall. Mm -hmm. But these big things that are going to be important for us to be on the same page because we're going to adjudicate every decision based on our values. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that it's not a good idea to tell me everything, which is fine, but I believe we should tell each other everything, think of the problems we're going to have, right? Right.
1: Within the walls of your office, what is do you think I also thought the book was very optimistic in the sense of what can be repaired, yeah, and you seem to have a pretty liberal view of yeah. like what what can work and what can how, a relationship that might be in extreme disharmony, how it can come to harmony, but what are there just profound deal breakers?
2: yeah, there are profound and they're sad. They're especially sad in my clinic because by the time people come in and there are clear deal breakers, uh, they're so attached that they'll do anything not to lose the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's understandable. But they're faced with opposing beliefs that cannot be... That they cannot resolve themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a, a real clear one is: I, you know, I want children. I've always wanted children. I started naming children when I was four years old. You know, that's that's a, an absolute for me. And you hate children. You never wanted children. You don't like them. You know, you had a terrible childhood. Whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. And then we look at each other. We stare into the abyss, which is our the end of our relationship. And then one of us says, "Let's buy a house." That's what people do, right? Uh, kick the can down the road, defer, and it's going to cause a lot of trouble. Yeah. But it could be, I want a a polyamorous relationship, you want monogamy. I want to live in the city, Um, you're a country mouse. These are things that have to be taken off the table for good, or they will get the couple eventually, it will get it, it's like a cancer cell. Mm. So deal breakers are resolvable so long as people do it with a sober mind thinking forward and make sure that they're not doing it for the other person, that they're not giving up something for which the other will hear about and pay for later. That's Mm -hmm. not fair.
1: Any advice for like the most loving and long-lasting relationship?
2: I think it is believing in this idea of interdependence. The book We Do is based on the idea that we've... We've become a culture too much of I do, me, my, mine. And while independence is important, biologically, neurobiologically, anthropologically, we are dependent creatures. We are not self-made. We, are, uh, we do not do anything well by ourselves. This we know. It's a fact. And there's a denial here, I think, in the West of our dependency, And that is normative and is healthy, and that is the way we are supposed to be. And when we defy that, we start to become unhealthy. Mm. There was the grant study, still going on, Harvard study, started in the 1930s, the longest study ever of uh, of human happiness and well-being and longevity. And it's still going on. And the unequivocal result of this study, even uh, decades ago, was there's one thing that will ensure longevity good health and happiness. And that is at least one secure functioning relationship. Mm. At least one. Of course, the more you have, the better. That is the only thing, the only prophylactic. We know that people who don't have that will die sooner. They're more vulnerable to mental illness, physical illness. This is a fact And Tracy and I, along with other couple experts, uh, Harville Hendricks, Helen Hunt, uh, Dan Siegel, Sue Johnson, you know, there's so many people. We belong to a group called Relationship First. We are all dedicated, and Alanis Morissette is in that group. It's a strange thing to name all these, uh, all these couple experts and then Alanis Morissette, uh, who's uh, wonderful, by the way. We all believe that we want to shift the culture into more interdependency, or what Dan Siegel calls um, from the me to the mwe, the uh, we and me. And that's what we do is about. It's about accepting who we are as uh, human primates, along with all the terrible stuff, um, indeed, there are lots. And accepting that, working with that, but also not making dependency a dirty word any longer. Yeah. Mm. and codependency. I was around when that was coined and that's uh, overused and misunderstood. Mm. So you know th- that people start to look for mentor couples, people who are doing it well, mm. uh, are the real deal. And hopefully um, have the experience of being in a secure functioning relationship. Because it's it's hard to describe unless you do it, mm. right? From the outside, it doesn't look so good.
1: I love that idea, the embrace of dependency, because yeah. it's true. And yes. it is it is that we do have that, there is sort of this rebellious conditioning of like, you can't be dependent on anyone,
2: and well, that is simply
1: not how life works.
2: You can say you can't be, but you are.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: we can prove it. So, uh, yeah. So that and also, I think, for people to understand that uh, memory, perception, communication isn't what uh, we think. Uh, We have uh, an incredibly uh, wonderful brain, but it's flawed, and we're making errors all the time in communication. We're mostly misunderstanding each other much of the time. Our memory is shit, can't be relied on, and our perception is like a funhouse mirror. Mm -hmm. That is something I think people also have to accept when they uh, believe that their memory, their communication, their perception is accurate. It isn't. We can never be sure about that. And so th- that should give way to more cautiousness, more, uh, more consideration, and more curiosity than we tend to have, especially in love relationships. Mm. We're too quick, uh, again, based on memory, and we make too many errors. This is something very important for people to start to understand and uh, not take these things for granted. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining Elise's conversation with Stan Tatkin. I hope it was resonant for you in some way. To see more of Stan's work, check out stantatkin.com and pick up a copy of his newest book, We Do. Thanks again for joining us on the Goop Podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode. And you can catch us again next week on Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday continues our special relationship series that is running all of February. To keep up, just hit subscribe. And if you have a chance, please rate, review, and share with a friend. For more info, head to coop.com slash the podcast.